When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast, my name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? The other half of the podcast, Kevin Valentin. Kyle, happy Thursday, dude. Yes, sir. Going into the weekend. You got anything planned for the weekend? Um, pretty sure we just got some individual plans. I know she works this weekend into reference to the girlfriend. Um, got some plans with some friends kind of like in between to hang out and stuff like that. But other than that, just simple stuff. It's nice. I got work, so that's going to be fun. But, um, sorry, you ready to dive into these topics, my guy? Hell yeah. Just coming off of a, you know, Thursday night football performance that uh, a little lackluster, but what are you going to do? Yeah. So, you know, first things first, we'll dive into the Buccaneers Eagles game. Uh, that we just saw. So the Buccaneers won that game by the score of 28 to 22. We'll start the episode off with that. Um, After that, we'll talk about the Los Angeles Chargers and the Baltimore Ravens squaring off in week six. It's a one o'clock game, but on paper, it's one of the best matchups that we have for the entire week's six slate of games. So we'll dive into that after the Bucks Eagles game. After that, we'll talk about the Cowboys Patriot game. So the Cowboys are really on basically just running on all cylinders at this point. And, you know, the Patriots are still an up-and-coming team with Alex Jones. After that, we'll talk about the Cardinals and the Browns. Cardinals are still the last undefeated team in the NFL, and the Browns are still in the mix for the AFC North. And then the last game that we will talk about is going to be the Buffalo Bills and the Tennessee Titans. That will be the Monday night matchup, and it'll be the last game that we talk about. And then we'll... Finish the episode with a little bit of NBA. We'll talk about the ongoing situation that's going on with Kyrie Irving and the Brooklyn Nets. At this point, it is basically expected that because of certain uh, COVID restrictions within New York, that he is projected to miss half of the games, which would be home games when the Nets would play in Brooklyn. We'll just kind of dive into that to kind of finish out the episode. And then we might go over some other NBA news that we've kind of seen over the last couple of days, but that's basically the agenda for our episode today. But like I said, we'll talk about the Buccaneers in the Eagles game. So the Bucs beat the Eagles by the score of 28 to 22. Um, To be honest, the score doesn't really indicate how the game actually kind of played out. The the Bucs by and large, controlled the tempo of the game through essentially three quarters of the game, in my opinion. But the Eagles did make a late push to kind of make the game a little bit interesting. 
They did score a touchdown in the fourth quarter, and they converted on a two-point conversion to make it a six-point game. But Brady and the Bucks, they just marched right down the field. They were able to burn some clock and pick up some crucial first downs, and then they were able to get the game-winning first down, and then they just kneeled it for three straight plays and iced it from there. But Kevin, with the Bucks beating the Eagles 28-22, to what were your main takeaways from this game overall? Well, obviously, as everybody knows at this point, if you're a religious follower or, you know, watcher of our videos, I have to support the Eagles because that is my girlfriend's team. And, you know, at the end of the day, I have slowly become somewhat of a fan for them in regards to my second team. And it's, it's hard to watch the Eagles play football lately. And, you know, like I know that they beat Carolina last week and I know that they made this a six point game, but like Kyle said, the score doesn't necessarily reflect the dominance in which the Buccaneers really held the most of the majority of this game. And I'm just looking at Nick Sirianni, obviously former offensive coordinator for the Indianapolis Colts and now head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. And I'm just looking at him like, what are you doing with this lineup? I mean, like, what are you doing with this roster? I mean, you have, Obviously, two former first-round picks in Devontae Smith and Jalen Rager. You have a fantastic tight end duo. Obviously, Dallas Goddard did not play tonight, but it's normally Dallas Goddard and Zach Ertz. You have uh, an up-and-coming surprising rookie in Gainwell, and then obviously the uh, potential to be a pro bowler in Miles Sanders. And you guys are running bubble screens and running the ball like a league low in terms of like your amount of rush attempts at the running back position. They ran the ball a total of nine times today. Absolutely atrocious. I get it. Tampa's got probably one of the stoutest, if not the most dominant rush defenses in the NFL, but we're talking from a seasonal perspective. The Eagles have legitimately not run the ball outside of Jalen hurts on an RPO or a quarterback keeper or scrambling out of a broken play at all. I mean, we're, we're talking Miles Sanders is averaging well over five yards per carry when given the actual football consistently, which is just ridiculous considering the amount of offensive line changes the Eagles have gone through within the last two seasons. So I look at this game and I say, damn, the initial first drive for the Bucks, they go down the field and score relatively easy. Then the Eagles reply immediately and then they go and score. I believe after that score, the Eagles did not get a first down in terms of like consistently until maybe the end of the second quarter, if that. The Eagles offense was just absolutely stagnant, and that is high and large to the fact that Jalen Hurts was very inaccurate. Jalen Hurts was relying way too much on that RPO, and Nick Sirianni's play calling was just absolutely just unacceptable. You have talent on the outside. You have speedsters in terms of receivers. You have big bodies with tight ends. And you have a phenomenal running back. And yet you fail to utilize that. And Kyle and I were talking about this prior to the game and kind of as it was going on. Um, I don't understand why we do not have Jalen Hurts under center. And I, I said we. I did not mean that. Again, I'm not an Eagles fan. I support the Eagles. I am a Colts fan. Force of habit because of how hard I cheer for them for the in-laws. Excuse me. Girlfriend's family. I know they hate when I say that. Uh, but genuinely, every play is out of the shotgun. So if I'm any defensive coordinator, I'm legitimately planning for Jalen Hurts and this RPO, and, and that's literally it. On the Bucks half, it does seem that the Buccaneers kind of took their feet off the gas pedal after their qu- score in the third quarter, and that's why Philly was able to kind of claw back into it. But the defensive pressure of the Philadelphia's front four was able to at least make life a little bit difficult for Tom Brady, not necessarily in terms of sacks. I don't believe they had any, but – in regards to just kind of pressuring him, knocking him down, and kind of making their presence kind of felt 
where Tom Brady had to move his feet and kind of like run outside of the pocket to a certain extent. But overall, the Buccaneers were dominant on all phases. They were able to get the ball going to Antonio Brown. I mean, Leonard Fournette had himself a game. And then, of course, the defense was able to pretty much for the majority of this game shut down Philly outside of some garbage time, uh, some garbage time touchdowns. But the Bucs moved to 5-1. and one. Obviously, Philly drops down to 2-4. and four, But the Bucs are just going to continue this dominance, man. They beat a bad team, which is what they need to continue to do go forward. And I don't see why they're not going to continue this dominance for the rest of the year. Yeah, like when I look at this game overall, by and large, the Bucks just own this game through the first three quarters of the game. I mean, when you look at the time of possession between both teams, the Buccaneers possessed the ball for 40 minutes of this game compared to 20 minutes for the Eagles. The Eagles as a team, they only had, I believe, 213 yards of total offense. And I don't even believe that they hit the 100-yard mark as far as total offense goes until the fourth quarter. So it really goes to show just how well Tampa controlled this game from the first quarter to at least the third quarter because it was like Kevin said, Jalen Hurts and that offense could essentially get nothing going outside of that first drive where they were helped by a pass interference that set them up within the five-yard line and they scored right after that. But there were large stretches of this game where the Eagles just could not get anything going. Jalen was just sitting in the pocket. He had time to throw on some of his passes, but just guys couldn't get open, or if they were open, then he would get flushed out of the pocket just because of the pressure that Tampa was bringing. It was just one of those games offensively for the Eagles. It was really tough for them to watch. It hurt, especially the first three quarters of the game, but they did make it kind of close in the fourth quarter. They were able to kind of make it somewhat of a game at the end. But, I mean, Brady just does what he always does. You're up by six points. You got about five minutes to go. You don't necessarily need to score to end the game, but you could just get a couple first downs and burn some clock and get the crucial first down to just start the kneel job. And after that, you're good to go. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I will talk about the Bucks real quick, though. I thought the Bucks they played great for the first three quarters, and then they definitely took their foot off the pedal in the fourth quarter. It's just because I think it was one of those games where I think by the third quarter, they were, I think they had 28 points going into the fourth. And up until that point, the Eagles really hadn't shown me or them that they were going to be a real threat in this game. And when the Eagles did kind of make of a push in that fourth quarter, the Bucks just finished them. So, you know, granted, both teams are coming off of only really three days of rest from their last matchup in week five. So it wasn't necessarily the high scoring affair that I thought it was going to be because I thought the Bucks were going to get at least 35 points. They settled for 28. And I mean, the Eagles did get into the 20s, but, you know, it's, it's the Bucks, man. The Bucks did what they needed to do. They beat a subpar Philly team. It, which offensively just they're so one dimensional with Jalen. It's not that hard to scheme against them. And it's pretty much kind of what I, what I expected. You know, the Bucks moved to five and one, the Eagles moved to two and four. And I think it kind of goes without saying, but the Bucks are still like one of the best teams, not only in the NFC, but in the NFL. And despite playing a subpar team, the way that they did, I still believe that to be true. So, you know, good for the Bucks. You know, they go, I, I think they played the Bears next week in week seven. So 
they get a week and a half to prepare for them. And then the Eagles, they got to go back to the drawing board and figure this thing out because there were large stretches of this game where they just, they could not get anything going offensively. Defensively, they got absolutely shredded by Brady and the Bucks in the first half. They did make some adjustments in the second half, but it was too late. So this was a game that honestly kind of expected. It's not really, not really much else I could say other than that, but you know, it's still a good win for the Bucks and, you know, the Eagles got to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, I mean, like I said before, man, it's it's really frustrating, not just as a, a supporter of a team, but just to, to watch a professional football team with the talent that's on this roster just, in my opinion, be completely misused. I mean, I just don't comprehend where Nick's mindset is when he schemes against these defenses. We all know that Tampa's pass defense is probably one of the worst in the league in terms of secondary and uh, secondary depth and passing yards allowed per game. Richard Sherman exits this game relatively quickly with a hamstring injury. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just getting some of their secondary players back from injuries, so you know that they're not necessarily 100%. But that offensive line did look spotty today. In a lot of ways, they did have a lot of penetration in which Jalen was just escaping for his life, and a lot of that was due to Shaq Barrett and Vita Vea making their presence known on that front four. So... I do think that uh, there was a large part in which uh, Jalen did have to kind of scramble for his life and make things happen with his feet. But when he did have time, just like Kyle said, a lot of these play schemes just made no sense. These bubble screens in which I believe Jalen was almost picked off one or two times. Uh, I'm thinking of that one play in which he threw it in the flat in the red zone and uh, number 43, I forget, Crocker, Croc, whatever, was able. Crockerel was almost able to take that all the way if he had some fucking shred of hands. But, I mean... Overall, once again, just disappointing that an NFL team just does not seem to know how to call a play, or should I say call an offense. And um, they low-key, like literally low-key, low-key, could have definitely come back and won this game if they would have played like this in the fourth. Like if they would have played like they did in the fourth, at least through two quarters. Because, man, like we talked about before, it legit looked like Tampa had this gone and they just like let off the gas pedal and they just kind of let Jalen walk down the field and score. Yeah. It's just, I think we've kind of mentioned this before with the Eagles though, is that when you're so reliant on one formation to basically carry the offense, you're just extremely one dimensional. And granted, I know that that's been Jalen's strong suit ever since he was with Alabama and Oklahoma before he got drafted. But you have to show some sort of variety as far as formations against, you know, the opposing defenses. Because if you're an opposing defense, all you got to do is scheme for the RPO if they happen to run it with Miles Sanders. Outside of that, they may run a play action. But nine times out of ten, they're probably just going to put Jalen, like they're going to give him like a three-step drop. And he's going to fling it. So pretty much, you know, the defense can basically kind of just like sit back. It's like, all right, we know what's coming. You know, Tampa's front seven, I mean, is phenomenal. You know, they were basically shutting out that rushing attack. I know it It did mention that the Eagles did get 100 yards rushing in this game. But by and large, that came in the fourth quarter when it was largely garbage time. Because I think Miles Sanders had like two runs with about like seven minutes left in the fourth quarter where he picked up like 40 yards on two plays. Outside of that, they had 60 yards of rushing offense through, what, the first 50 minutes of the game? So it's just, I understand that you're going up against Tampa's defense, which is really tough to run against. 
you know, maybe this isn't the best team to really start running the ball against, but at some point you got to make some more, you got to make more of a consistent effort to at least show the defense that you're going to run the ball at least 15 to 20 times. It doesn't have to be, okay, we're going to run the ball 30, 35 times, but you got to show the run just so that defense can respect the threat of the run. It's just that Philly is just by and large, they're just happy with what the RPO is. And they're a subpar team offensively just because they're so one-dimensional with the way that they run their personnel. And I, I do believe that, you know, if they were to switch things up as far as give some of the formations some variation in their offense, that they could be a more legitimate threat offensively. But with the way that it's currently constructed with the formations that they have, speaking of but the only one because they only run the gun, that's not going to happen. Not anytime soon. Yeah. Last point, Jalen was 12 of 26 for 115 total yards in the air. Um, obviously, he was sacked twice, so he did lose two yards, so technically 113. That is still an average of 4.4 yards per passing attempt with a passer rating of 55.8. Mm-hmm. Jalen Hurts was also the leading rusher in terms of total carries, 10 carries for 44 yards and two touchdowns. And like Kyle said, two of Miles Sanders' runs – uh, in that fourth quarter, in their later drives, was the reason that he ended with the total that he did. Nine carries for 56 yards, still 6.2 yards per carry. So we do not know if that could have continued throughout the game, if maybe they would have let Miles have a good one. But it is what it is. We're going to move on because this just kind of gets me like low-key kind of depressed because there's so much potential on this roster, at least in my opinion. But it is what it is. Yeah, so... Uh, the game that we have next that we're going to go over is going to be the Los Angeles Chargers going up against the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, just to kind of give you guys uh, the rundown for both teams at this point coming off of last week's performances. Uh, the Chargers got into an absolute shootout with the Cleveland Browns last week. I believe the score in that game was 47-42 to with the Chargers coming out on top. Uh, currently, they're at the top of the AFC West, which I don't think a lot of people had penned in at this point in the year. And then to flip it over to the Ravens, the Ravens had probably one of the best comeback performances that we've seen all year. I know it's probably coming to the chagrin of Kevin because the Colts are his team and the Ravens were able to secure an overtime win against the Colts by the score of 31-25 to where the, in that game. I mean, Lamar Jackson just absolutely took over. The guy was responsible for over 500 total yards by himself. And Kevin, it's just one of those things, man. There's not much else you could say. It's just Lamar Jackson is one of those dudes, my guy. And he proved that. Yeah, yeah, Indy. Yeah. That was despite the fact that I thought Indy, um, they had definitely had some chances to, to uh, secure that win, but they just couldn't come through. So, Kevin, I'll pose the question to you. With this Chargers-Ravens, matchup in week six in week six excuse me do you believe that this chargers ravens game is going to be one of the best games that we will see in week six i mean right right off the rip you just immediately think of lamar jackson versus justin herbert and i know this is a team sport so by no means am i trying to identify this between just two individual players but those are the two people that headline both teams. Justin Herbert's having an MVP caliber season. Obviously, Lamar Jackson coming off of a, an incredible Monday night victory against the Colts, having the season that he is. Obviously, top 10 in terms of passing yards and rushing yards, which is unheard of for a quarterback. So, 
I'm wondering, can the defense of both teams respectively stop the other? Obviously, the Ravens' defense struggled against Carson Wentz last week and Jonathan Taylor, so that does not lead me to believe that they're going to be successful against Austin Eckler and Justin Herbert. And then on the opposite side, uh, are the Chargers going to be able to stop Lamar Jackson in that offense because they were unable to stop Baker Mayfield and Nick Chubb? I think it's going to be an absolute shootout. I think it's going to be first turnover is going to win the game just because San San Diego, sorry, force of habit, L.A. was able to drop 47 against a very confident and capable Cleveland Browns team. You have Miles Garrett and so many other players on that team, Jadavion Clowney, and the list goes on, and they hung up 47. You legitimately are now facing probably one of the scariest offensive players in the NFL in Lamar Jackson because of his dual threat capabilities. You have one of the best tight ends in football this season in terms of Mark Andrews coming off a career night. Don't remind me. I'm reminding myself. That was stupid. Um, and then, obviously, the, the Ravens' offense is just very confident right now. I mean, after their, their loss in terms of week one, they're on a four-game win streak, and they are just on an absolute tear. So I, I really don't know. I mean, I can't even p- make a prediction. I mean, overall, in terms of just quarterback talent, I would say that Justin Herbert is a better pure passer. But Lamar Jackson just has the edge because of his escapability and kind of his ability to – break or when plays break down around him he's able to make something out of nothing or make something out of a negative and it's just ridiculous because there were plenty of times we had him in the backfield this past week or there were times where Lamar should have definitely been sacked or that should have been an incomplete pass or a dead play and Lamar's able to extend the play with his feet every single time and make something happen whether that be with his legs or a crazy pass that coverages aren't meant to last as long as they are because plays, when they break down, they're expected, Kyle, what, like three, four seconds, if that? He extends them to five to seven, maybe even ten, of just scrambling around in the backfield. And before you know it, someone stops covering somebody or someone just stops on a dime and sprints in the opposite direction. And that's a, that's a broken play for God knows what, 20-plus yards. Mm-hmm. So I really, really can't make a prediction on this one, man. I just I don't know. If I had to give an edge, I'm merely giving the edge to Baltimore just for the sheer fact of Lamar Jackson's dual threat ability, man. That's, that, I can't give a score, but I do know it's going to be a shootout. I think for me, I'm going to give the slight edge to the Chargers in this game because I look at it like this. You know, Baltimore definitely did get the win against Indianapolis last week, but I have to say, Carson Wentz and that Colts offense were able to march up and down the field relatively easily throughout the majority of the game, if not the entirety of the game. And Carson had one of his best, if not his best performance of the season last week against Baltimore's defense. They got up to a very hot start and they were just able to hold that consistency through most of the game. Now you're going up against Justin Herbert and the Chargers offense that is just firing on all cylinders at this point. And when you look at the Chargers offense compared to what the Colts had last week, the Chargers, as far as their weapons go, are far better than what the Colts have on their roster. You've got Mike Williams, who was just coming off of a monster of a game last week where I believe he got over 150 yards receiving, had two touchdowns, and on both of the touchdowns that he had, he was open by a mile. And not only that, you've got Keenan Allen to work with. You've got Austin Eckler, who is just probably one of the best dual threat running backs that we have in the NFL. 
he's great with rushing the ball and he's great out of the backfield in the passing game. And you combine that with the fact that at your tight end spot, you have Jared Cook, who is a reliable target to throw to. I just don't know how Baltimore is going to be able to hold up against that. So I think the Chargers, realistically, they can put up 35, potentially even 40 points against Baltimore. I have that much confidence in Justin Herbert and that offense to really get it going. Now, on the flip side, though, the Chargers defense can be had. Because last week, look, the Browns scored over 40 points, and you had Nick Chubb and Baker Mayfield and Kareem Hunt basically light it up the entire day. Even David Njoku, who's not even their number one target, I mean, he's their tight end, and he had over 150 yards receiving last week. So with the Chargers defense, there's definitely a, a cause of concern because it's like what happened last week against the Colts. The Ravens were able to find off offensive consistency when they needed to in the second half, and they never looked back. So the Ravens are going to be able to put up points against this Chargers defense. I just don't know how many they're going to be able to put up. They could get up into the high 20s, maybe the low 30s, simply just because Lamar is on an absolute tear, not only out of, you know, just his, not, not only out of the backfield with his feet, but if he could throw the ball like he did against the Colts going up against the Chargers, that is possibly a recipe for disaster as far as the Chargers defense goes. But I don't necessarily think that's going to be the case. I think the Chargers are going to be able to, to force some turnovers against Baltimore. And I think that's going to be the difference maker. I do think that this game is going to be high scoring. I think both teams are going to get into the thirties just because I don't have a lot of faith in either defense stopping one offense or the other. But I think the chargers win this one by seven points. I'm going to go with a score of 38 to 31 in favor of the chargers. But I'll be honest with you. This is going to be one of the best games of the week. And I can't believe it's not a Sunday night game. It's a one o'clock game. It's the first slate of games in the afternoon on Sunday. So I really look forward to this one. Uh, and, you know, fasten your seatbelts, boys and girls. It's going to be a show to watch on Sunday afternoon. That's for sure. This could potentially be the decision maker down the road sometime in January on whether or not our, when does the MVP get selected? Is that January, right? Yeah. I believe at some point in January, we're going to be looking back at this game saying, wow, this could be a decision maker for either party here. Like this could be a make or break game that catapults both of them into a crazy second half of the season run into an MVP continuous like dominance. I mean, whoever wins obviously goes to five and one. Both, both of these gentlemen are going to be upwards in the, uh, the upper echelon of the MVP conversation for the majority of the season if this pace continues and their teams continue to succeed. But this could definitely be one of those if it does come down to the two of them. Well, you know, they did face off head-to-head -head who won this game. So there's a lot of implications that ride on this just outside of uh, record and overall performance in the season. This could end up being an MVP deciding factor. So there's a lot riding on this game, and I could not be happier. But like Kyle said, the fact that this is not a primetime game is very unfortunate. Yeah, but it's definitely going to be a fun game. And it's like I said, it's going to be a high-scoring affair, and it's going to be – it's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be a lot of fireworks from this game. That's for sure. But with that said, we'll transition into our next game for week six. And that will be the Dallas Cowboys traveling to New England to go up against the Patriots on Sunday. So just to kind of give you guys um, the rundown of both these teams going into this matchup. You had last week where the Cowboys were phenomenal once again. And... 
they're currently head and shoulders above everybody in the NFC East at this point. I mean, they just, Kevin, they just put an absolute beat down on the Giants last week. It wasn't even close. I believe they won 44 to 20, if I remember the score correctly. And they're just firing on all cylinders at this point. And then to flip it over to New England, they were able to get a very close win against the Houston Texans last week. It was kind of an ugly win. I don't really want to dive too much into that game because I am, don't get me wrong, the bias is going to show here, but Got a w, it, was, bro. it was one of those games where I'm glad we won, but man, it was ugly how that team got it. Um, currently, the Patriots are sitting at two and three. You know, definitely probably a subpar to average team at best at this point in the season. But Mac Jones has definitely shown some flashes of some solid play through the first couple games of his rookie season so far. So, Kevin, with the Cowboys going up against the Patriots in this Week 6 matchup, uh, who do you think has the advantage in this game and why? Well, I'm strictly just going to go Dallas because they do have a deadly, deadly offense. And I know that Bill Belichick is always known for taking away one of your best dominant features, whether or not that's your Pro Bowl running back or somebody out there that's dominating on the receiving end or even a quarterback in terms of limiting him and making him kind of feel the pressure from inside the pocket. And I just feel that Dallas just has all of those things. Dallas has a very capable quarterback in Dak Prescott. Dallas obviously has one of the league's best running backs and probably the best league backup outside of Kareem Hunt and Tony Pollard. And then the the, the wide receiver tandem of CeeDee Lamb and obviously Amari Cooper is just one for the history books because we have the young speedster that is CeeDee Lamb that does run a very great route tree. And then on the opposite side of the field, you have probably one of the best route runners in the NFL and Amari Cooper when he feels like playing. Um, and then on the defensive side of the ball, you have a defensive player of the year candidate in Trayvon Diggs. So I do believe Dallas has the edge on almost every single front. But New England does just overall have better coaching. Obviously, Mark McCarthy has made some questionable decisions in his tenure thus far in Dallas in terms of some of the personnel that he'll run in certain games. And then obviously, Kellen Moore is the offensive coordinator calling the plays for Dak. But when you think of the opposite side and Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels, Bill's definitely always been the defensive engineer, and Josh has always been the wizard that has assisted this offense and this very incapable offense for the majority of Tom's career in terms of personnel. Um, Josh McDaniels was the wizard behind a lot of those Super Bowl victories. So you kind of have to wonder, what is he going to dial up to come prepared for that game against the Dallas Cowboys, who statistically, technically, still have one of the worst defenses in terms of offensive, uh, what is it, passing yards, right? They give up a lot of yards just across the board. So in in terms of their defense being detrimental to the offense of the New England Patriots, I think this is going to be one of Mac Jones's best opportunities to come out and show that he's a first-round pick for a reason. And I feel that they're going to be able to dominate the line of scrimmage because I do not believe that this Dallas pass rush is going to be able to consistently get to Mac. And I think that Bill Belichick and Josh are going to come prepared to get some quick strikes out there kind of get the receivers kind of in, in, in some form of a rhythm and obviously get Matt going and confident with his ability to put the ball down the field. So we will see what happens, but I definitely do still have Dallas overall winning this game by 7 to 10 points, maybe by the score of 34-24, something of that nature. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you here simply just because I just think Dallas has too high powered of an offense to contend with. Now, I will say this about the Patriots, though. The Patriots, when they've gone up against a high-powered offense, specifically against the Bucks, a couple weeks back, they held Tampa to only 19 points of offense. 
and they definitely showed that they could contend with a high-powered offense. But the one difference between Tampa and Dallas is, well, in the Tampa game, it rained pretty much the entire night, and I think it definitely affected the Bucks' ability to be able to get into an offensive rhythm. That's not going to be the case in this matchup. I think the weather is going to be a lot more opportunistic as far as just being able to move up and down the field because I don't think rain is going to be a factor in this game whatsoever. So when I look at Dallas's offense, I think their main point of emphasis this week is run the football. New England has one of the worst pass, not, not one of the worst. They have one of the worst rush defenses across the board in the NFL. And with the way that Dallas's offensive line has controlled the line of scrimmage in pretty much every game that they've played so far this year. This is a game where I could potentially see Dallas getting at least 150, 175, if not 200 yards of rough uh, in rush offense from both Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard. It's just, if those offensive linemen can open up those run lanes for both of those guys, it is going to be a long afternoon for that Patriots defense. And really, I think the only way that the Patriots are going to be able to kind of contend with the Cowboys is to be able to throw the ball consistently. And I do think that Mac is going to have some solid opportunities to pass on the secondary that Dallas currently has. The only thing that I would probably tell Mac is just stay away from Trayvon Diggs. That dude is going to be in the right position at pretty much all times. And if he's in the right spot at the right time, he will definitely grab an interception. Hell, I mean, he could even grab two if the opportunities are there for him. But I do think that the Patriots are going to be able to move the ball up and down the field against this Dallas defense. The only thing that would counteract that is if Dallas gets a pass rush, which they could, depending on who starts for the offensive lineman for the Patriots this week. Last week, they had four out of their five starting linemen out due to injury going into that Houston matchup. I believe they will be more healthy going into this matchup against the Cowboys. So they do have a better chance to keep Mac upright in this game, but I don't think it's going to be enough. I'm just, I'm rolling with what I've seen so far with Dallas. And I think Dak's going to have a solid game as well. He's been extremely efficient this year. He has not turned the ball over that much throughout the season so far. And I think if they're able to get CD lamb and Amari Cooper, and hell, even Dalton Schultz, their tight end spot, open. I think the opportunities are going to be there. I don't think it's going to be a high-scoring game that I think some people may possibly project in this game. I think I think Dallas scores like 27, maybe 28 points, and I think the Patriots, I think they score somewhere around 21 to 24. But it's going to be a one-possession game when it's all said and done. But I'm favoring Dallas in this matchup simply just because They just look like the better team at this point. But you never know what Bill Belichick can dial up. And he's one of the best defensive coaches that we've ever seen. And look, if they're able to get Dak off his spot, and if they're able to slow down Tony Pollard and Ezekiel Elliott, I'm not ruling out the possibility that the Patriots could get the upset here. I just think it's more likely than not. I think the Cowboys get this one, and they move on to 5-1 in the season at this point. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one, obviously. Just trying to figure out in terms of how New England could combat this offensively, just because I'm trying to figure out how they're going to get that offense going 
Damian Harris is injured. James White's out for the season. You're relying on a rookie running back and a, and a career special team slash third down running back and Brandon Bolden in your backfield to kind of lead the way to establish the run game for you. And I don't know if you're going to be able to lean on Mac for 40 to 50 pass attempts against this uh, this Cowboys secondary and Trayvon Diggs. I mean, they know that they can make plays. So, I mean, like, do you avoid his side of the field the entire game? Do you utilize the mismatching of your tight ends? Or do you just end up doing what you normally do and, and utilizing your running backs out of the backfield? Because I feel like you guys are going to be slightly handicapped already with the kind of rotation of offensive linemen, like you stated. Obviously, even if they do come back to play, you know as well as I do, they're probably not 100% healthy. And then your lack of depth in the running back room is going to make it really hard. And you're just going to have to lean on a rookie quarterback. And I don't know how that's going to vote for you. Well, I think when it comes to Mac, they've been fairly safe with him, to say the least, as far as you know what they're dialing up for plays for him. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, he hasn't thrown too many interceptions so far this year. And I think if really they kind of keep him on this path for this season where he's basically making the plays on short intermediate passes, that's fine. He doesn't need to go out and, you know, chuck the ball 30, 40 yards down the field on a consistent basis and hope to hit on some of those passes. I think just the way that New England's going to run their offense for this year is they're going to keep this offense when it comes to the passes relatively short and intermediate. And they're going to expect, you know, guys like Nelson Aguilar, Jacoby Myers, Hunter Henry, and John U. Smith to get separation from their defenders and work off with that. And I think it has worked so far to get into the red zone. Their main issue this season is once they get into the, the red zone, they just can't score touchdowns. And I think that's just, due to the inexperience that Mac has as a quarterback, I imagine that he will get more confidence in that part of the field as time goes on. But I'm not mad with how Mac has started the season. I think Mac has had a very solid start to the season. And I think at this point, it's just building confidence in the kid. And, you know, th- this is a big test for Mac. You know, this is probably one of, if not the best teams that he's going to go up against the entire year. And I do think that, as long as he's protected and he's held upright, I think he could produce very well for New England in this game. So I can't rule that out entirely. It's just whether or not that he's going to be able to outperform Dak. And Dak's been phenomenal this year, to say the least. It's just, can Mac keep it close to Dak? Because I think Dak is still going to be able to produce better than Mac. But this is going to be a very fun matchup, and I'm definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, obviously Dak being in the running for not only comeback player of the year, but some would say he's in the MVP discussion. So, I mean, of course, in transition, we have another potential MVP candidate here in this next slate for this next matchup, which is going to be the Arizona Cardinals against the Cleveland Browns. Obviously, the Arizona Cardinals are the sole remaining unbeaten team in the NFL at 5-0, and coming off of what seemed to be a lot closer of a game than it should have been, uh, a 17-10 to victory against the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, and then obviously, as Kyle stated earlier, the Cleveland Browns are sitting at 3-2, and two, and they are coming off a painfully struggled loss uh, against the uh, L.A. Chargers. Obviously, in terms of struggle, I mean, on the defensive side, they just could not stop a cold. They allowed 47 points against Justin Herbert and those boys. So Cleveland is looking to bounce back defensively and get a little bit more back to that gritty kind of uh, physical defense that they, know, they are known for with the personnel that they have on that side of the ball. 
But at the same time, Kyler and those boys look to continue their dominance on their on their uh, on their tear right now in the NFL alongside their win streak. Unfortunately, Chandler Jones will be out. He tested positive for COVID, so we are looking at a little bit of a hindrance on the defensive side for the Cardinals, which could bode well for Baker. I so three, I mean, I believe three players for Arizona tested positive going into this game. I know Chandler was definitely one of them, but I think three players for them tested positive. I think they're all going to be out. This weekend, are we talking about are we talking about starters or just three players in general? I I saw the report that said three players, but Chandler was one of them. Mm, so maybe Chandler was just the biggest name. I don't know, but again, yeah. overall, overall in terms of the game itself, Kyle, I'm just going to ask you: both quarterbacks, Heisman winners, both quarterbacks, Oklahoma alumni. So I'm looking at this game, saying, well, is it going to be the battle of the gunslingers, or is Kyler Murray just going to continue his dominance and his MVP campaign? I'm going to be honest here. I think Cleveland's got a very good shot to win this game. And granted, I'm basing this off of what took place last week uh, against the Chargers. I was very impressed with how the the Browns were able to move up and down the field relatively easily against the Chargers. And I have to throw this out here. The Browns were the first team in NFL history to put up 500 yards of total offense, have 40 points scored, have no turnovers, and lose the game. I mean, that is just a very tough stat to kind of read at face value if you're a Browns fan because offensively, they could not be stopped whatsoever. And it was just the defense that gave up damn near 50 points to the Chargers. I mean, the Chargers have one of the best offenses in the league, so I can kind of understand it, but still giving up 47 points, that is really tough to get past. So I do expect a major bounce back game from that Browns defense uh, in this upcoming matchup against the Cardinals. I believe that Miles Garrett and that pass rush that Cleveland missed last week against the Chargers, I think it's going to be able to step up in a big way. I don't know if they're necessarily going to get sacks. What they could do is just force Kyler off of his spot, force him to roll out of the pocket, and you know hope to God that he doesn't connect with either DeAndre Hopkins or Christian Kirk or whoever on just kind of like one of those trademark kind of like fadeaway passes that Kyler's kind of been known for throughout the early parts of his career. It's just, I like the offensive consistency that I'm seeing from the Browns at this point, And I just love the one-two combo that they have with Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. I think if the Browns offensive linemen are able to open up some run lanes for both of those guys, I feel like the Browns can control the tempo of this game and it would keep Kyler Murray on the bench. I think that's really kind of the best formula that you could have moving forward if you're the Browns. And as long as Baker doesn't turn the ball over, I could see the Browns putting up 30 points against this Cardinals defense. And to flip it to the Cardinals, they weren't really impressive against the 49ers last week. Granted, it's a divisional matchup, and some of those games can be closer than I think some people can expect going into the game. But still, Kyler was able to hook up with the with DeAndre Hopkins when it mattered the most, and they were able to secure that victory with a 17-10 score. So I do think that the point of emphasis for the Cardinals in this game is we need to be more aggressive, we need to get off to a faster start, and I think that they will. It's just I have a little bit more faith in the Browns this week to get the upset against the Cardinals, and I think it's going to come at a relatively close score. I think both teams are going to be able to score pretty effectively against both defenses, I'm going to say that the Browns are going to score 31 points 
And I believe the Cardinals are going to score 27, but I do think that the Cardinals undefeated season ends against the Browns. And I think the Browns need to get this one because they showed me that they are definitely one of the better teams in the AFC North. And they would definitely be at the top of that list if they were to get this upset against the Cardinals. But I definitely think that the Browns have the personnel to do it. It's just, they can't turn the ball over and they got to limit Kyler and hopefully they're able to force some turnovers against that Cardinals offense. But I think it's definitely in the, I think it's definitely in the cards for the Browns to get this win. And Kevin, I'll kick it to you from here. Dude, I can't agree with you more. I really think this win streak ends and it has to live and die in the hands of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. There's no question about this. They're the literal best two tandem in the NFL, period, at the running back position. You have the power running of Nick Chubb, and then you have the elusiveness and pass-catching ability that is Kareem Hunt, who is also capable of running between the tackles. And then you are going to have such a hard play-action fake. The capability of drawing and sucking that defense in is going to be so strong for Cleveland. I feel like that's just going to leave one-on-one matchups on the outsides, whether that ends up being the tight ends up the seam or Odell Beckham or uh, Peoples-Jones, just finding ways to create space between their defensive backs that are going to be lined up in front of them. Um, obviously, I do believe, like Kyle said, that Miles Garrett and Jadavion Clowney are going to get back to that pass rush um, in terms of getting able to put pressure on the quarterback because we all know that Kyler Murray does most of his damage with his legs, whether, once again, similar to Lamar Jackson whether that's extending the play or running himself with an RPO or just having a quarterback sneak because, or draw, should I say. And it's just, it's very well effective and it just, it it does so much damage to a team. And it's so demeaning to know that a play will completely break down. You do whatever you need to do to close the pocket or just kind of make hell for him in that backfield. And then he gashes you for a 15 yard gain nine times out of 10. It's usually for like a first down or something of that magnitude. So I know that facing a mobile quarterback can be very demoralizing for a defense as a whole, but I think that Cleveland's going to be up to the task, and as long as you keep the ball out of Kyler's hands, that means that Arizona has to consistently play catch-up, and that might force Kyler to make some of those turnovers that we know that he is prone to do sometimes when he gets pressured or when he falls behind early. So the running attack in terms of overall comparisons within the teams, obviously Cleveland has a better rushing attack in terms of their running back personnel. Since there really is a committee literally in Arizona between Kyler Murray, James Conner, Chase Edmonds, and, and just a litany of other players, there's not really much consistency. Whereas that is Cleveland's strong suit. That is the bread and butter for the Cleveland Browns. And if that's going to end up making life easier for Odell Beckham, then so be it. My challenge here for the Browns, is getting your biggest playmaker on the outside the ball more. Odell Beckham has not been utilized in this offense properly since he's arrived in Cleveland. And Kyle and I have talked about this a multitude of times on and off air. Last season and this year, they don't use him properly. They don't use him right at all. Half the time, he doesn't even get looked at. He may get some targets here and there, but on some chump change plays or maybe some third down opportunities, they don't look at him in the red zone. They obviously don't look at him in in, in long goal situations. So you look at Cleveland's front office and you say, well, why did you trade for him if you're not going to lose one of the most dynamic, if you're not going to use one of the most dynamic playmakers in the NFL right now? So 
I challenge Baker to give Odell those opportunities. Let him beat those one-on-one matchups since the run game should be your main focus. And let's really take the wind out of the sails for Arizona. Now, when you flip it to the opposite side, you do know that you're going to be able to tire this defensive line up, or should I say tire them out, with Kyler's ability to be elusive. And you obviously have a top two, if not top three, wide receiver on the opposite side of the field. Or should I say on the same side of the field with DeAndre Hopkins and the wide receiver core has been able to step up over the last couple of weeks between Christian Kirk popping off in week one, AJ Green had his best game of the year a few weeks back. And then DeAndre Hopkins is always going to get his looks and his targets because he's just him. But the offensive firepower that is the Arizona Cardinals can put up and light up a defense. But like Kyle said, I was very disappointed or should I say um, underwhelmed with their performance against San Fran. And I didn't think San Francisco was going to be able to keep up as well as they did. So I think Cleveland's going to be able to take advantage. I think they're going to be able to capitalize. Plus they're going to have a lot of pent up anger at the way that they performed last week in terms of the defensive side. So I think that that adds fuel to the fire in terms of Miles Garrett and those, the rest of the cast on the defensive end. And I think that that's going to make life a living hell for Kyler Murray. So like, who? so who you're saying that, the Browns would would get the win. Like by what margin do you expect it though? Um, it really depends. So if they're able to force Kyler to make those turnovers and keep the ball out of his hands, I could see this game being a, a seven to ten point game. If not, I think that Cleveland will just squeak by with three, maybe seven points. Like it again, if they force Kyler to make mistakes, it it could get away from them quickly. But if they're just consistently getting pressure on him and and, and they're making it hell, I think it could be probably come down to a field goal yeah it's it's kind of rare because typically you know when i like look at these matchups you know ahead of time you know i mean the cardinals have been on a solid start to the season i mean starting off five and oh i mean that's a very solid start but it's just i just i think it's in the cards for the browns this week i don't know why i have this i have this level of faith with them that i haven't had with other teams in the last couple weeks and it's just simply just because I was so impressed with what the Browns offense was able to do last week against the Chargers. I think that's going to continue into this game. It's just whether or not that their defense is going to be able to hold up against Kyler and that offensive firepower that Arizona can present. Because I imagine that Cliff Kingsbury is going to make a point of emphasis that the offense needs to get it going based on that performance last week of only scoring 17 points against San Fran. So... I think this is really a game that's going to be highly offensive and it's just, it's really up to whether or not that you see one quarterback make the mistakes or the other, meaning, you know, we see Baker make the mistakes or Kyler make the mistakes. I just don't think that Baker's going to make the mistakes this week. And it's kind of odd for me to say that because Baker does have a tendency to turn the ball over, but I just don't see it this week. I'm, I'm rolling with Baker in this one but it's going to be a close one. I think it's going to be like a three or four point game when it's all said and done though for the Browns. Definitely going to be a good one, but I mean, that's going to round out the afternoon games and we're just sliding right into our final game segment of the evening, which is going to be the Buffalo bills against the Tennessee Titans. Obviously we know that Tennessee is coming off of a disappointing victory last week. I mean, they beat the Jacksonville Jaguars, but it wasn't in a manner in which we had expected I would assume that Tennessee would have probably done a little bit of a better job in terms of dominating the way that most teams have dominated the Jacksonville Jaguars. But the game was a little bit closer than expected. On the opposite side, 
the, the fucking Bills went into Arrowhead and absolutely just completely embarrassed the Kansas City Chiefs on their home field, and they just ran away with what looks to be the AFC. And I know a lot of people have said that Kansas City's fallen off and that Buffalo has now taken the reins in terms of the king of the AFC. Everybody pump the brakes. It is literally about to be, or should I say, it is literally week six as of tonight. We have a long way to go for the rest of the season. But I think that this is going to be a good matchup for the Bills. We're going to see if they can continue this success offensively. We're going to see if they can continue their success on the defensive side. Last week, it was the passing attack of Patrick Mahomes. This week is going to be the ground game of Derrick Henry. We all know how the Titans live and die by his success in terms of his efficiency running the football. So, Kyle, I got to ask you straight up, is Derrick Henry going to crack this defense or is Josh Allen going to torch that one? I just have more faith that Josh Allen's going to be able to torch that Tennessee defense. And it's not to say that I don't think that Derrick Henry is going to have a bad game. It's just Josh Allen just absolutely torched that Tennessee, that Kansas City defense last week. And I think it's going to continue against Tennessee. When I look at Josh Allen, Josh Allen, I don't know if he was necessarily like the highly, the most highly regarded quarterback that was selected in that draft a couple years back, but he has really shown that he can run it with anybody. And not only can he do it in the passing game, but what he's able to do with his feet, I think is an underrated aspect of his game because there have been games this season where Josh Allen is getting consistently in between 40 to maybe even 60 yards of rushing throughout the game. And, you know, granted, he, he's not like Lamar Jackson where he, you know, he could potentially get up to a hundred yards rushing, but on certain plays where the play breaks down, Josh Allen can make plays on his feet and pick up some crucial first downs. We saw the one last week when it was towards the end of the game and he hurdled one of Kansas City's defensive backs to get a crucial first down in the fourth quarter. And you combine that with what they've been able to do offensively this year. You know, obviously he has great targets to throw to, like Stephon Diggs, Emmanuel Sanders. You had Dawson Knox get into the mix last week. And then you got Cole Beasley on top of that. Granted, their run game is not that consistent. That's kind of the one aspect of their offense that is still very weak in my opinion even though they've tried to make a more consistent effort to try and run the football it's just not where it needs to be yet but i don't think it matters just simply because josh allen is just firing on all cylinders at this point and i don't see it slowing down because i don't think tennessee's defense is really that capable of being able to stop him and i could see josh allen potentially putting up 31, 34 points against this Tennessee defense. And when I flip it over to Tennessee, Tennessee has been up and down to say that up and down, just inconsistent this year. They've had great moments where they've looked like kind of the, the best team to come out of the AFC South, where they could really compete against any team that they come across against. And then there are just some other games where they just have let down games. And I think it's all dependent on whether or not that they can get Derrick Henry off in this game. If Derrick Henry can get off to a very hot start against that Buffalo defense, because Buffalo has one of the best defenses that we've seen in the NFL this year and within the last couple of years, if they're able to get him some good carries and open up some run lanes for him, I definitely think that it gives Tennessee a chance. I, I just don't expect that to happen. 
not as much as what we saw from Jacksonville last week. Jacksonville has one of the worst defenses in the NFL, and that's why Derrick Henry has absolutely feasted on that team in particular. But I don't think that it continues for Derrick Henry this week. I think he's going to have a relatively pedestrian outing. But I could see the Tennessee Titans hanging around with Buffalo maybe through the first half, maybe through the first three quarters. But I think Buffalo, they make some good second-half adjustments, and I think they end up making the difference in the fourth quarter. I think Josh Allen just able to – he's going to be able to connect with his targets for some crucial plays going down the stretch, and I think Buffalo gets this win. I think it's going to be a close game. I think it's going to be a one-position game uh, when it hits final. But I think Buffalo wins this one 34 to 27. I definitely think that Tennessee is going to keep, keep it close, but I just think Buffalo, they're just too good of a team. They're one of the best well-rounded units in the NFL, offensively and defensively. And when it comes to Tennessee, I think they're solid offensively. It's just their defense that is the weaker aspect of their team, and I think it's going to bite them in this game. And that's why I got Tennessee. Not, not, that's why I have Tennessee losing this game, and I got Buffalo uh, going to 5-1 and one after week six. So I'm going to agree with you, but I'm going to take it a step further. I think that Buffalo absolutely wipes the floor at them. Now, I know what I said about Tennessee. Um, they won the game 37-19, and but again, it wasn't in the manner that you would expect. Uh, a lot of it was just kind of giving the ball to Derrick Henry where it mattered the most. I mean, he had three touchdowns, but Tannehill had a mediocre 197-yard game for a touchdown. So, you know what I mean? I, I get it. Point-wise, it was a big game. So I'm just clarifying for those of you that are going to come at us in the comments and say, oh, well, Jacksonville ended up losing the game by 18 points. How was it not a dominant victory? Obviously, A.J. Brown barely got any touches last week. And then, of course, Julio Jones, I believe, was also out, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So, yep. you know, the, the the full team was not put together in terms of Tennessee just being able to move the ball like they normally would. But – Good news for Tennessee this week. Julio Jones is back at practice. A.J. Brown is looking better than he did last week in terms of recovering from his injury as well. So Tennessee looks to be fully healthy. Now, that's the only positive note I have for Tennessee because I'm not even playing with you. I genuinely think that Josh Allen is going to carve up this Tennessee secondary because I just feel like if they were able to go into Arrowhead and dominate Patrick Mahomes, who in the hell in their right mind doesn't think that they're not going to go into Tennessee and dominate Ryan Tannehill? Like, again, I get it. The Chiefs and the Titans are two different teams because you live and die by two different forms of offense. One lives and dies in the air, and the other one lives and dies on the ground. So if I'm literally looking as a defensive coordinator for the Bills, I'm saying I'm putting nine in the box every time, and I'm having you beat me one-on-one. The pass defense to the Buffalo Bills is one of the best in the NFL, and I know that it's a tall task to say, damn, I got to guard A.J. Brown and Julio Jones one-on-one. That's going to be real difficult. But you're putting the ball in Ryan Tannehill's hands. You got to hope that the Buffalo pass rush is able to get to Ryan Tannehill and make him uncomfortable. Obviously, Ryan Tannehill is very efficient when rolled out, but you have to keep him contained. So you have to make the pocket collapse. You don't want one side to kind of rush in and then fall apart and have Ryan Tannehill roll out to the opposite end and extend plays with his legs. You want the pocket to kind of break down around him so that it makes life difficult and it makes him make some tight and difficult throws. But again, Derrick Henry is the main focus and the main villain on this offense every week, every single time. And that is not even up for discussion because it is just proof to the pudding. 
when Derrick Henry does well, they win games. The man had, like I said, 149 yards, excuse me, 130 yards and three touchdowns. Absolutely incredible. He's damn near averaging 25-plus carries per game, so you know that he's going to get the ball every single time. Now, in this sense, on the Tennessee side, they're going to have to bank on playing a very, very tight coverage in terms of protecting the deep threat because we do know that Dawson Knox, Emmanuel Sanders, and Stephon Diggs are very capable of making big plays. So if I'm the Tennessee defensive coordinator, I'm going to make them run the ball. I'm going to run a lot of soft coverages. I'm going to run a lot of cover two and cover three zones to make sure that Josh can't beat me deep. Josh Allen is a great mobile quarterback, but if I'm Tennessee and that pass rush can find a way to just make it just a little bit difficult, let Devin Singletary get the ball. Let Zach Moss get the ball. They're not an efficient team offensively in terms of moving the line of scrimmage with the run game outside of Josh Allen's legs. So the only way for Tennessee to kind of make this difficult is to make Josh Allen's life difficult. And that is very hard because Josh is able to extend plays with his legs as well. But to kind of give a final point to it, I think Josh Allen's just going to carve it up in general. Hopefully, because I had to play Devin Singletary in fantasy because I took Miles Sanders out because we all know how today's game went with the Bucs. Um, I'm hoping that they lean on the rushing attack for the uh, for the game this Sunday because – I just think it's going to be the smartest decision. Create the play action, let them bite down, keep them honest, and then at the end of the day, beat them over the top, and then we will see what happens. And breaking news, Cody Bellinger leads the Los Angeles Dodgers into an NLCS NLCS appearance against the Atlanta Braves. Ladies and gentlemen, the Dodgers are looking to repeat from last year's World Series run, and they get a chance to do it this coming week. And... (laughs) Yeah, like I, I just saw it pop up on my feed. Uh, Kevin, just what, what's your quick reaction to the, uh, to the Dodgers beating the best team in the majors this year with the Giants? I mean, the Giants had 107 wins this season. Just you know, I what mean, is your, it, what's your reaction? It comes down to big plays. It comes down to big name players. And Cody Bellinger is one of the best players in baseball. Obviously, Mookie Betts is the first player that comes to mind. You have Clayton Kershaw on that team who hasn't played in the series, but overall, you just have bigger names on the team. And sometimes that's what it comes down to. You pay big players big bucks for clutch situations. Cody Bellinger comes in the clutch. And now you obviously have the Atlanta Braves and the Los Angeles Dodgers going for the NLCS. And then on the opposite side, you have the Astros and the Red Sox. Both teams could honestly disappear, and I would not be upset. But uh, that's going to be the matchup for the AL. And uh, you're looking at a great postseason matchup here on both sides, man. Obviously, the Braves are coming off of a kind of up and down end to their season in terms of capturing the NL East title. And I, I favor the Dodgers in that series just because I feel like the Dodgers are going to get their players back in terms of Mac Muncy and Clayton Kershaw should be returning for the series as well. So that just adds two more weapons in terms of what the hell could the, the Braves even do. But it is baseball, and the teams of runs tend to just win these games. Obviously, the Braves did upset the Milwaukee Brewers. So I'm not going to say it's definitive, but I will, see, I will say that I see the Dodgers winning that series probably in five or six. On the opposite side... Kyle, I don't really give a shit. You can make a prediction there. I just hope the NL wins. Kevin, I I gotta ask. Lesser of two evils here. No. I know these are very big evils to you. They I know you have utter hatred for these I can't teams pick. in your heart. You have can't to pick. pick one. You have to pick one. Which team would you rather see lose in the ALCS rather than make it to the World Series? Like both. 
You have to pick one. It's got to be. I one can't. The, you have to pick they're, one. They're both cheaters. You got to humor me. You got to humor me on this one. Alex Cora is Puerto Rican. Um, Alex Correa is Puerto Rican. So I, I I can't even make a decision based off of just stupid ethnicity. I mean, I hate them so much. I can't pick it so hard. <laughs> I really can't, dude. I'm sitting here trying to find the 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 bright side. I like Dusty Baker. All right, I like Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker is a great manager. Dusty Baker deserves the world. Dusty Baker had nothing to do with the, the cheating scandal. So I mean, if the Astros won, so be it. So it's literally just hate the Red Sox till the end of time. I just hate everything about the organization. I hate everything about the players and the personnel group. I hate everything about the Astros too. But again, there's the only silver lining is I I I like Dusty Baker. That's it. That's all. That's it. Mm. Where where do you see that series going? Like, do you see it going to seven, or do you see it finishing up before then? Red Sox offense is hot. They just beat the best team in the American League. Um, Red Sox pitching staff is up and down. I mean, it's not really the best. So, I mean, I would lean towards the Astros winning just because of how they were able to dominate the White Sox and how they were able to close out the season. And I mean, Alex Correa. And, you know, Jose Altuve are, are really leading that team. They've been here before. They know what it's like to win in October. They know what it's like to capture a title, even though they fucking cheated. Um, but I would probably give the edge towards the Astros. But, again, Boston's hot. And, like I said, for the, uh, for, the, for the Braves, usually the hotter team ends up having a little bit more of an impact that people like to give credit for. So I would not be surprised this season. That, that, that series goes to seven. They're both very competitive and deep teams. I'm just amazed at how quick the Red Sox were able to literally send the Rays packing. I mean, they wrapped up the series in, what, four games? I thought it went to five. I thought it was four. I thought they got it wrapped up in four. Well, maybe they did. I wasn't paying attention. Oh, but just, you know, you got to give the Red Sox a lot of credit. I mean... You know, great. I know you're gonna hate this point that I'm bringing up. But I don't. Really, I don't. I think, I don't I'm gonna give him shit. I think. I think getting that win against the Yankees in that wild card round really kind of got them going, and it just kind of carried against the Rays in that ALDS series. Because I was, I was fully expecting that the Rays were gonna win that series in four games. I didn't really give the Red Sox that much of a chance, but I mean, I remember that game two performance where I think the Red Sox they put up at least like eleven or twelve runs. In that game, they probably put up more, like 14. They smoked them. They smoked them. Yeah, so, you know, it's one thing. Like, you know, Houston's pitching is going to have to be on point. And, I mean, they were against the White Sox. I mean, especially in that closeout game. They won 10-1 to in that game. It was ridiculous. On the road, too. So, you know, this is really going to be a matchup of seeing, okay, well, what what team is going to show up? Meaning, can Houston's pitching staff be able to slow down this Red Sox, this Red Sox offense, excuse me, or, you know, is it going to be that the Houston's pitching rotation is going to be able to, to, it's either that or they can't stop him. It's one or the other at this point. And I really don't know how it's going to work out, but it's like you said, though, Houston has been here before granted, whether they cheated or not, you know, that's beside the point, you know, they're in this ALCS kind of on a frequent basis the last couple of years. And, I would say on paper, I would have to give the edge slightly to Houston just because Jose Altuve, Correa, they've been there. They've done that. 
So I think this this series has the potential to go seven games, but I'd have to give the edge slightly to Houston in this matchup, just based off of what I've seen so far. But I mean, the Red Sox in every way, shape, or form could pull this series off at five or six too, just because. I mean, look, when a team's hitting, man, it's tough to stop them unless you've got aces that can go out there and gun down that that starting lineup for the Red Sox. But it's going to be a very fun series, in my opinion, though. Yeah, yeah. October baseball is going to be interesting. Not the teams I wanted to be partaking in the uh, in the games, but nevertheless, in other baseball news, the Yankees fired Phil Nevins, or should I say, did not bring him back. God bless. The Yankees also said that they're not bringing back their hitting coach. So we are getting rid of little bits of pieces, but rumor has it Aaron Boone's coming back. And Brian Cashman's also coming back. So um, not the happiest of campers. So transitioning into our final topic, since I'm literally boiling as of right now, I don't know why. Um, the uh, Wow, I literally lost my train of thought. Kyle, take it from here. This fucked me up. <laughs> All right, you ready? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. All right, so the the last topic of conversation that we're going to have for the episode this for this week, um, it is going to be the ongoing situation that's going on between Kyrie Irving and the Brooklyn Nets. So I think pretty much everybody under the sun has basically heard of Kyrie is not going to be taking the COVID-19 vaccine. And it is leaving the Brooklyn Nets in a situation where Kyrie Irving could potentially miss half of the season or just half of their home games because due to the local ordinances and the COVID-19 protocols that the city of New York, the state of New York, and the Brooklyn Nets have set up for this season, he would not be allowed to play in the Barclays Center or arena, whatever it's called for the home games unless he's vaccinated. So Kevin, obviously this is a very touchy subject. Um, I imagine a lot of people have different, differing opinions on whether or not that Kyrie should get the vaccine or not, but just give me your perspective on just the situation as a whole of Kyrie Irving and him not taking the vaccine based on what his stance is on the whole mandate policy. So obviously everybody has their own life choices and how they're handling COVID. I'm not going to get into pro-vaccine, anti-vaxxers. I, I don't believe that there, there is such a thing. I just think people have different preferences. So let me be clear about that. Um, Kyrie has obviously vocalized his opinion on such matters, whether or not he agrees with it or not. He has stated that he is not an anti-vaxxer. He just genuinely does not want to take it because he feels that how people are being treated for these New York City mandates is just unfair. He's trying to take a stance and, and trying to make sure that people are aware that just because you are being pressured into doing something for a career and being threatened with termination, obviously not in his case, but he is also communicating for those that did lose their jobs in New York because of the pandemic in the mandate regard. Um, I think it's a noble cause. I really do. I, I think that Kyrie is making a statement for a lot of people. And he is standing up for a lot of others that do not have a platform like himself. However, in terms of just speaking about the NBA and speaking about the Brooklyn Nets and the team and what they need, 
that is their starting point guard and who they owe $32 million to. And he needs to understand that if he wants to play basketball for Brooklyn and play with KD and play with Harden or just play in New York in general, this is what the option is. There really is not an if, and, or, but. There is no negotiation. This is what it is from the city. It's not the NBA. It's not Adam Silver. It is above you. It is bigger than you. It is a decision in which you have no control over. It is either you take the vaccine or you do not. Now, what you decide is completely up to you. I, again, respect whatever choice you make, but you cannot complain that you're not going to get paid. You cannot complain that you're not going to like the team that you get traded to because that is probably the only option that Brooklyn has, and I'll get into that in a second. This is the choice you've been dealt, and this is the choice that you have to make. Is it sad that it has come to this point? I agree. Yes, you should not be forced to have to do anything you do not want to. But again, I understand where New York is coming from because of the scare in which COVID put the city and put the state and put everybody in general in the world in. So I I get both sides. I really, really do. But when it comes down to the final choice, vaccine, you get paid your $32 million and then you potentially get your extension of 185. Don't get vaccinated don't get to play the home games. Brooklyn probably decides to trade you because you decide to go against what it is that needs to happen for the state. And then you're on a team that you don't want to play for. Kyrie said on Instagram live last night, he has no intentions of retiring. Kyrie Irving also said that it's not because he does not believe in the vaccine. So again, let that be clear, but it has gotten to a point now where this has become such a media distraction for the team And we are probably just a little bit over, if not just under a week away from the NBA tip-off. And this is headlines all over the place, everywhere in New York. It's bigger headlines than the Knicks. It's bigger headlines than the Lakers because Kyrie Irving is just genuinely all over the tabloids because he's choosing not to get the vaccine. And again, I respect this choice. But when it comes down to a business decision, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. You are literally putting your career in jeopardy because if you get sent somewhere for the best available offer and that best available offer, again, hypothetically, nobody knows anything is fucking Cleveland. You're back to square one, except there is no LeBron James. So the remainder of your career is pretty much a wash. Again, the the season ends and you will become a free agent and somebody will sign you, but you're wasting a year. You don't know what's going to happen. Brooklyn can be your best chance at an opportunity at another ring. So, I do not know what Kyrie's going to do. I don't believe anybody knows that but himself. But in terms of the Brooklyn Nets' best option, I would say if he is hell-bent on not taking it and you are not going to be re-signing him in this offseason because of these these, uh, vaccine mandates, get something for him, put something on the table, and you have to make your other superstars happy. KD signed an extension this offseason. James Harden is going to be due for an extension, I believe, in a year or two. You got to win now. Because Kyrie leaving is unfortunate, but as you can see in the post-game press conferences for both KD and James, I believe KD's probably talked to Kyrie a lot more, but you can see that James said yesterday, I haven't talked to him, and he has no interest in talking to him. So the distraction is getting to the team internally. It's gotten to Steve Nash, and it's going to get to the owner in the front office of Brooklyn. So only time will tell at this point. But Kyrie's making the decision for what he believes to be right, and if he feels like leaving money on the table, then that's his business. Well, and there's two ways to kind of look at this. You know, you look at, you know, Kyrie's stance, and I imagine like he's taking this stance from a perspective of just personal liberty. You know, I understand that the NBA has made this a mandate where they pretty much want every NBA player vaccinated going into this season. And I understand why some people 
may feel, you know, in disagreement towards that, not because they have an issue with the vaccine itself. It's just, they just don't believe that the NBA should be mandating that everybody across the board should be getting the vaccine to be able to play. And I do think that Kyrie in that respect I, that's something that I agree with. And I also think kind of just the issue at hand here that Kyrie is bringing up. I don't believe it's a bigger, I don't believe it's an issue um, of Kyrie bringing this up. I think this is more of a poor reflection of just the NBA rules in regards to COVID is that's another, that's another topic for another day though. That's just my opinion on it. But when it comes to the impact of Kyrie not being able to play, for half the season for, for Brooklyn, that just puts Brooklyn in a situation where, Kevin, I, I'm fully in agreement with you. You have to trade him because I don't know how you could keep somebody on the roster if they're only going to be able to play half the games for you because of the local rules in regards to COVID that he wouldn't be allowed to enter this, the arena and play. And that's just kind of how I see this scenario playing out. I don't believe that those COVID rules or those COVID mandates are going to change anytime soon. So Brooklyn's got to be, I imagine right now that they might be fielding some offers from teams that are interested in Kyrie services at this point. But I think those other teams going to have to look at this situation carefully because depending on where you go, there could be teams where you could look at the owner, for example, where they want everybody to be mandated uh, to get the vaccine. And I know Mark Cuban was one in particular saying just the last day or so that all of his players and everybody within the Dallas Ma Mavericks organization needs to be vaccinated to be able to participate. And like if Kyrie were to get traded to like the Dallas Mavericks, for example, I don't know how that would be able to work out just because, you know, Kyrie has a stance against the vaccine. I don't think that scenario would happen. I don't really see him going to the Mavericks, but it just puts... Kyrie in a situation where I understand the personal liberty point that he's making, but when it comes to the business side of things, as far as his NBA career is concerned for this season, yeah, it puts him in a bind. It puts any team that he could potentially play with in a bind. So, you know, I totally, I totally understand. And I know where Kyrie's kind of coming from with the whole personal liberty aspect in regards to just mandates against COVID. But you have to understand that there's another side of this equation and it is the business aspect. And if he wants to sacrifice that, that could happen where, you know, this year he may just sit out. I don't think that's something he wants to do, but I don't know how it's going to really play out because I don't really see a team trying to trade for Kyrie if he's only going to be able to play half of the games depending on where he goes because there are other mandates across the country you know, for this whole COVID vaccination thing. So the situation is, is tricky on face value. It's very sensitive. I know everybody kind of has their own opinion on it. But, you know, I understand where Kyrie's coming from, but the other thing is is that it's definitely going to affect his basketball outlook for this season. And I don't know how it's going to be able to change anytime soon, but on the personal liberty part, I get it. I do. That's just how I look at it though.
Guys, once again, we are not influencing or trying to say that we are pro or anti-vaccination. Everybody has their personal opinions towards it. Again, I'm literally clarifying, Kyle is clarifying our opinions on Kyrie Irving's direct situation in regards to his decisions for the upcoming season. So before you guys blow us up in the comments and say, we don't know anything, you guys are stupid, it makes no difference because all of these sports analysts and professionals are saying the exact same thing. I mean, for God's sake, Stephen A. Smith is telling Kyrie basically to stop the shit, cut it out and play basketball. And we all know that it can be a little bit deeper than that outside of just being the type of person that Kyrie Irving is. I know that he is naturally somebody that is always in the media for the wrong reasons, but the things that he was doing off the court were a distraction as it is. Now you have this in this season with the vaccine. So we're talking about back-to-back seasons in which Kyrie Irving is going to miss a multitude of games for different reasons, and that just provides too much of a distraction within the locker room for the Brooklyn Nets to proceed in chasing a championship. So does Kyrie get traded? We believe so. Is it going to happen? Only they know. And, I mean, like Kyle made a great point. Even if he gets sent somewhere to another team and they get a haul for him or they get something – is he even going to play for them because of, God forbid, there's another state mandate within that own city or that own organization? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. It just doesn't make sense. It seems like a lose-lose situation. You keep Kyrie, you have to deal with the distraction. You trade Kyrie, you lose a top 15 player in the NBA, and you obviously lose a, a, a top scorer and a, a potential person that can assist you in chasing the ultimate goal of winning a championship. So. I don't think it's it, it's going to help anybody. I mean, whoever ends up acquiring Kyrie, if a trade does happen and they do come to some form of an agreement or there is no state mandate, I think he's going to be an immediate upgrade at whatever position or whatever capacity he ends up filling. But it is what it is. I don't really want to talk about it anymore. It's it's yeah, it's, it's, it's too it's too tough of a subject before yeah, people start getting political. I mean, the final point that I'll make on this, and I'll make this one fairly quick, it's just. It's such a touchy subject, and I understand everybody kind of has their own perspective and opinion on this. It is kind of crazy, though, that in order to really kind of make your livelihood as far as an NBA player this season, that, you, that you're mandated to get the vaccine, though. And I understand the reasoning behind it. I do. But that's a tough one for me. That's a tough one for me. That's just That's just me, though. But... You know, I, I trust me. I understand these guys make millions of dollars every year, and trust me, I don't think Kyrie's going to be hurting if he never played another basketball game in the NBA again. I, I think Kyrie will be set for life. You know, that's not really a point of, you know, emphasis here. It's just um, for this season in particular. I just, yeah, I, I don't know if it necessarily sits right with me about, you know, you have to in order to be able to play games, you know, every game you have to be able to, you have to take this vaccine or it's, it's going to be kind of a nightmare. Cause I mean, I've seen the rules in regards to people that are unvaccinated in the NBA this year. And, and just some of the rules that they have against unvaccinated players and, and unvaccinated personnel, it, it just seems a little bit over the top in my, in my opinion, but you know, everybody has their own opinion on it and you know, just kind of leave it at that. But, um, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not that Kyrie gets traded. I think that's really going to be the interesting thing moving forward because I, I just don't see how it happens any other way. I, I don't. I'm like, you can't carry a guy on the roster if he's only going to be there for half the year. And and 
you know, I know they're going to be able to get into the playoffs. You know, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, once we get, you know, into next year, if those COVID mandates are going to stay. But, you know, if they get into the playoffs and they still have him on the roster, there are going to be games where you need to have him on the court. And if those COVID mandates are still in place, he'd miss playoff games. You know, you potentially they'd be going for an NBA championship. You know, but it, it really kind of comes down to, you know, does Kyrie think that this is bigger than basketball? And I right now he's currently making that stance very well known at this point. So it'd be very interesting to see where this goes uh, from here on out. Yeah, uh, definitely an interesting time in basketball. I mean, for God's sakes, Ben Simmons turned around. It's, it's fucking reported back to Philly after all the debacle. And now we have Kyrie doing his thing with the vaccine. So it's been a very odd offseason for the NBA. But that's that's about honestly going to wrap it up here. It's a little late on our side tonight. I mean, I believe it's just under one thirty in the morning. Uh, once again on me, I came home a little late from doing some stuff. But overall, guys, we are at 231 total subscribers. We are just making progress. I believe Kyle and I did the math, or Kyle did the math, should I say. We're up about 15 subscribers in the last three weeks, which averages just shy if not exactly, I can't even do math now that it's so late, at five subscribers per week. Um, it's been amazing. The grind has been incredible. I mean, the things that we have planned in the future, the things that we have in the pipeline that we want to continue to strive for is just going to be that much better and is going to improve the quality of this podcast. I mean, obviously, the um, the content of the podcast is going to remain the same. The effort and the motivation is going to continue to be driven but without you guys, none of this is possible. So again, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, in our last audio upload, we had 20 total plays. That is a number we have not hit individually in terms of one episode in many, many, many months. So for the fact that we were able to crack 20 within just a, a short, maybe, what was it? Maybe over 48 hours, if that, absolutely incredible. So to, to anybody that listened, to anybody that watched our uploads and our content, thank you so much. And it's just going to get better from here. I got nothing else to add. Pretty much not that out of the park on that one. So, you know, like Kevin said, you know, just we just appreciate you guys supporting the podcast in any way, shape, or form that you have, whether it's just watching us on YouTube or listening to us on the audio platforms. Uh, we definitely appreciate that. So um, to give you guys an update going into next week, obviously, you know, we'll drop our Monday episode like always. Uh, we'll be going over the week's six slate of games from the NFL. Um, we will be giving our preview for the NBA season because the NBA season does start next week. So we'll give some previews on who we think is going to be the top dogs in the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference. And I imagine we'll probably kind of throw out like a an early season projection or pick on who we think is going to win the NBA Finals this year. So definitely stay tuned for that. You know, you got the ALCS and the NLCS going on this weekend. So that'll definitely be a fun topic of discussion. So. You know, stay tuned. We got a lot of content coming for you guys, and hopefully you guys get to uh, enjoy it with us. But like we said, you know, just appreciate you guys tuning in and supporting the podcast the way that you have, and we will see you guys next week. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool.
50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. Electric acid. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast.